0: Dr. Amalia Gonyas malka welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line for our series on women in the judiciary is permanent High Court Judge Taboko Jadje from the Northwest Division of the High Court. Welcome to the show. Thank you, good morning, and thank you for having me on your show. It's an absolute pleasure. To begin with, you earned your BProc and LLB from the Northwest University. You went on to be admitted as an attorney, were appointed magistrate in Clerksdorp in 2001, became a regional magistrate in Mabato in 2004, and in 2013 served as an acting judge and then elevated to the bench as permanent judge in 2017. Did you always envisage a legal career and eventually being part of the judiciary? Well, yes. Um, If I must say since high school,
1: I noticed that we had a few lawyers or practicing attorneys in our community and seeing how difficult it was for community members to access these legal services, I saw that as an inspiration for me to study law. But it did not come easy because, you know, when I was in my final year of high school and I spoke to one of my teachers that I was interested in pursuing a study in the legal field, the response I got from her was that, You cannot go and study law because that's not a career for women. You should rather register a bachelor in public administration because that's what women do. And that was motivation for me to now seriously pursue a career in the legal field. But what I initially intended doing was just to practice law as an attorney where I would be representing our people because I saw the struggle that came with not having lawyers in our community who could represent our people or who were easily accessible to our people. So I started practicing as such after graduating and serving my articles. I practiced law. Later on, I went on to join the Law Clinic, where I was also doing community service, assisting our indigent people and also exposing the final law students to the practical side of the legal field. And one day I then decided that I wanted to change and go on to the bench, and that's when I became a magistrate, and that was in 2001. And two years as a district magistrate, I realized I wanted more. You know, I wanted to do more and I wanted to achieve. I wanted to help our people more because when you are in the district court as a magistrate, there are cases that you don't do, and I wanted to be exposed to more matters in the legal field, and that's when I applied to be in the regional court. I served in the regional court for some time, from 2004 until I was appointed a judge, an acting judge first in 2013 and permanently in 2017. So as my interest grew in the legal field, that's when I felt the need to go and do more and advance and achieve in this legal profession which i enjoy so much
0: it's one of those fields which has got such a a massive implication on on people's lives on being able to change them for for the good and also being able to prosecute individuals who have transgressed and caused criminal acts to to happen and, and and take place yes yes
1: that's true
0: Reflecting for a moment as a judge, what would you say have been some of the most memorable cases that you've presided over?
1: I, I wish to start when I was in the regional court because when I started in the regional court, I was presiding in the sexual offence court and uh, that meant I was just doing sexual offences cases. And they, uh, the cases that stand out in 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 my head are cases which involved children, young girls as victims. It was actually very sad for me to have to preside over cases where these children were raped by people close to them, in some instances family members or people very close to their families. Those were cases that would really give me sleepless nights, that you see young girls, from the age of six years. At times, even babies going through such traumatic experiences. But then as as a judge now in the high court, I got exposed to more cases. There's one that also stands out, especially where you see a victim in a gender-based violence or a sexual offense who has been traumatized to an extent that they're not able to get into a courtroom and testify. That case was a matter where when the victim was called into the court to come and testify, she could not relate what happened. And the sad thing about it was that she, could, she was the only evidence that could be led against the accused person. And she went for counseling. She went for therapy. But there is no intervention that assisted her to be able to come into court and start testifying. She would get into the courtroom. As soon as she gets into the witness box, she starts screaming. She cannot open up and talk about the ordeal. It was sad for me, it was difficult for me as a presiding officer to see that happening to a, a victim who's not able to tell the court what happened. She was able to speak to people outside the court, but as soon as she steps inside, the trauma overcame her so much that she could not testify. And at the end of the day, it was a matter of there was no evidence against the accused and I had no choice but to let him walk. That is one matter that still really stands out.
0: In situations like that where, where victims have become so traumatized that they're almost paralyzed to, to speak, is there not another way of doing video or, or, or something where they're in a, an environment that is more familiar or or less intimidating for them to relay their story? There is. We do have a CCTV
1: uh, system that would be installed in the courtrooms where you have a victim testifying through that system. And uh, even with that system in place, because we do have it at our court, even with that system in place, she just could not testify. As soon as the proceedings become formalized, could not testify. There are those systems because with young children, we do have an intermediary system where a child would testify sitting in one room with the assistance of an intermediary and all that the child can see is the person next to them. And uh, the ones who are sitting in court are able to see the child through a screen, but the child cannot see or hear the people in, in the other room. The same goes with adult victims as well, where you have an adult victim who's not able to testify in an open court, there is an application that can be brought before court for that victim to testify uh, either not in an open court, in a room where they can just use that CCTV system, or you clear the court completely. But this was just one matter where Everything had been tried. We had social workers and psychologists, everybody coming to court to assist this victim. But we just could not get anything from her when it came to her giving evidence formally under oath. It was a very difficult one.
0: And the sad reality is that women and girls, in particular, fall prey to sexual offences. In South Africa, it's estimated that 90% of sexual offences are committed against women. And almost Mm -hmm. 30% of those crimes go unreported. In the last 10 years, I was looking at the uh, South African Police Services data that between 2008 through to 2018, there were 584,497 sexual offenses reported. And obviously, we know that there's the, um, the unreported crimes that go with it. But in relation to these types of crimes, in in your opinion, do you think the presence of female judges perhaps make the ordeal less distressing for women and girls who appear as as witnesses and and survivors?
1: Uh, I'm sure people would want to hear me say yes. But the truth of the matter is that victims of such uh, crimes have a right to have confidence in their judicial system. And we with a judicial system that does not have stereotypes or that does not make assumptions or have any bias. Now, if we were to say that in these type of cases, it should only be women or female judges presiding, it would not be fair on our male counterparts. All that is required is that we have a system, a judicial system that the victims should have confidence in. They should know that this is a system that does not have any stereotypes and any bias. It should not matter who is presiding. Of importance is what the responsibility is of a presiding officer. I know of uh, our male colleagues who do preside in sexual offense cases. I know where they would be sympathetic to the victim, not to an extent of being biased, and obviously convicting an accused person before they hear the, the side of the story but being sympathetic to the situation that the victim went through. For example, as I was explaining now uh, in relation to the CCTV system, when uh, a presiding officer, a judge, sees that a victim is traumatized, they know what systems are in place to try and assist that victim. That's what is expected of each and every judicial officer. So it shouldn't matter who is presiding. It should only matter that this is a system that the victims have confidence in, they trust that in this court, no matter who's presiding, I'm going to get justice, whether it's a man, whether it's a woman. But I know the perception out there, people would would want to say that they would feel more comfortable if it's a woman presiding in such cases. But that shouldn't be, because our system is such that we have male and female judges, They take an oath. They know what is expected of them. They know how to treat witnesses and victims in each and every matter. So it it should not be a question of only female judges will treat victims of uh, gender-based violence better than the male counterparts.
0: And as you say, it builds and, and imbues faith in the system. A South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone
1: achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights,
0: and democracy. Today, we're talking to permanent High Court Judge Chboko Judge from the Northwest Division of the High Court. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. I wanted to ask you on more of a personal level, you've witnessed probably some some horrific cases. How do you personally cope and, and deal with what you've been exposed to? Uh, it can be
1: very difficult, as I said when I started in the regional court as a mag- as a regional magistrate. I was uh, placed in the sexual offence court, and it was a time when I had I just had my baby girl, and you know I would be sitting in court during the day and listening to these young children having gone through these traumatic experiences with the family members very close to them, and in a way. It, it it does affect one because I would get home and I would look at my my daughter and think I should not let anyone near her. What will they do to her? Because I I, I deal with this every day. But uh, one just needs to be very strong so that it does not affect you to a set, to to a point where you get paranoid and you see each and every male as a perpetrator. And uh, I learned not to be a sponge and hold on to these kind of matters because these are type of matters that can cause one to fall into a state of depression or a state of paranoia, like I said, where you you don't trust anyone around you because of what you experience during the day. It's not easy. It's very difficult. But it needs a strong-willed person to be able to separate that work from the private life. Of of course, being conscious of what you go through and what you experience and what you see around you. But I must say, it's, it's really not easy. There was a time when we would, as colleagues, talk about having some kind of retreat or a wellness training where we just go and debrief and talk about these experiences because sitting alone in court and you go through this, you don't have anyone to talk to, you don't have anyone to discuss this, And you don't want to see yourself having to consult with a therapist every time you have presided over a matter. You need to be a strong-willed person to be able to cope with the kind of cases that one deals with.
0: The work that you do definitely benefits society, but it it can't compromise your own well-being.
1: Not at all. Not at all, yes.
0: You are... Passionate about developing women in the legal field, you've served as chair of the South African Women Lawyers Association in the Northwest. You are a member of the International Association of Women Judges in South Africa. You've taken part in the Take a Ch- Girl Child to Work program. Uh, the International Development Law Organization believes that improving women's ability to work in justice institutions is essential not only to ensure that women enjoy democratic freedoms and equality of opportunity in the workplace, but also to ensure that the specific interests of women are represented and advanced in justice institutions. Can you tell us more about these platforms and networks to promote the entry of women into the sector as well as retain them and advance them to the highest level?
1: Yes, uh, as as you've already indicated with the IDLO, uh, what it does, it's, a, it's an intergovernmental organization, which I believe that its uh, main purpose is to empower people, and basically to enable governments to reform laws and strengthen institutions. Now, as as far as it comes to women, uh, I believe that it's it's an organization that promotes peace, justice, and sustainable development. Now, it it encourages governments or states to institute measures that ensure that there is women participation. And that is what these platforms and networks intend to do, to ensure that there is participation of women in government and in several institutions. Now, all that is required is for the governments to provide opportunities for women to be introduced into institutions, into government entities, to be able to participate at that level. As you stated, that I I am a member of, of the International Association of Women Judges, and as you can hear, it's an international association, and what we strive to achieve is the empowerment of women in the judiciary with the aim of creating an inclusive judiciary as its main principle. Now, as as, as part of what we strive to do in the promotion of the participation of women, we have programs that we do. For example, in the IAWJ, the South African chapter, we do have a program that is mentoring final year students. And each year, as a member, I take a number of students, final year students that I will mentor throughout the year. It started off uh, attracting young uh, women who are doing their final year in the legal studies. But uh, we got some resistance or complaints from their male colleagues or counterparts at universities complaining that, you know, it's not only women who are passionate about women issues. There are men as well who are passionate and who want to grow and assist. That is why we even have uh, men who are members of IAWJ. So, what we do with this program, the mentoring program, we have these students who you would take under your wings, and throughout the year, you go to court with them. You introduce to them to different. Aspects in the legal field, you introduce them to practicing attorneys, advocates, they have discussions with them. We participate in mock trials. You have, um, you address them, discuss certain topics with them so that they can see and develop an interest in this practice and know that they can do it. They have the ability to do it. And those are some of the programs that we are running as the IAWG day to trial and promote the participation of women in the legal field.
0: The moot court and the the mentoring component sound like a very an enriching experience and and nurturing that you are, are helping them for a full year, almost hand-holding. Yes, yes, that's
1: exactly what we do. Uh, it, it's not easy because remember that they are also studying at the same time. And you're working. So, Exactly. You have your own work and judgments to write, but in between, you have them come in. They come into court with you. You make time to have discussions with them. They write uh, memos on what they have learned. You discuss certain cases with them. Uh, If they sit with you in court and you are done, you're preparing your judgment, they will sit around with you and make inputs on what they have notice of what they have experienced, it's quite an enriching one because we have some of these students after graduating, they would come back to us and inform us that the program helped them tremendously because now that they are out there, they see what they have been learning and what they have experienced and it it makes it easier for them now to be able to uh, contribute to wherever they would be at that particular time. It's time-consuming, but if one is passionate about it, you don't even see the sacrifice that you're making. You just see the fruit that you're going to get after you've done such a program.
0: And you're building the next generation of of, of the legal team, of the legal sphere.
1: Definitely, definitely so. Because it's it's really worrying when you see uh, an attorney coming to court representing a person, and they they don't have passion in what they're doing they're doing it for the sake of a financial gain and that's not what it's all about and that's what we're trying to instill in the students when when we're going through the mentoring program that this is it's it's not just a job you know it's a career where you put your mind and energy in it because you want to get some kind of benefit from doing it and that's why we don't just take them to court and they sit there and they don't participate We make sure that they are part of the proceedings that we're doing, they discuss, they sit with these advocates and attorneys, they discuss with them, and they are able to see and contribute so that they know that this is what they want to do and that it's not a mistake that they they were studying law.
0: Thinking about some of the gender equality instruments that are in place, such as the the Commission on the Status of Women, the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action, The Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. The United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, especially Goal 5, which is about gender equality and women's empowerment, they confirm that women's representation as well as participation in decision-making bodies is a human right. But despite this right, women are still grossly underrepresented in professional careers. How do you think we can use policy like these, which have been in place for 20, 30 years, more effectively to drive change or change policies to promote women in, in decision-making roles? Uh,
1: I, I do agree with you that it is a, a human right. And uh, we do have policies in, in our country, in South Africa, we do have policies. Uh, the only issue is the implementation of these policies and that is why it's important that we have bodies like uh, in our case the IAWJ which would promote uh, implementation of such policies because uh, dr. Moka the issue would be or the challenge that we would be facing is the the the, the question of inexperience or qualification where you have a female and a male competing, and the question arises that there is uh, the challenge of inexperience or insufficient experience and maybe insufficient qualification. And that now becomes a problem when these policies should be implemented. But I'm proud to say that I've seen women being appointed in very senior positions and very qualified and well experienced, sufficiently experienced, to be able to perform the work that they are expected to. It should not be that women should just be appointed because there are no women. Women should be appointed because they are qualified and they can do the work. And what we need to do now, uh, we need to equip women to have the confidence, the motivation, the drive to know that If someone comes and says, but I've been doing this for years and you have not been doing it for as long as I'm doing it, you will not be able to do it. And it should be something that women should say, but I'm going to do it. Like I said to you, I was in high school when I was told law is not for women. And I said to myself, but I'm going to do it. And that is what we need to do and instill that in women. We must remember that optimism, it's it's not... Cultivated, We cannot go and buy it from a shop and suddenly a person is hopeful and confident. It's something that must come within so that these institutions, these companies, they can see, the government can see that these women are capable and they can be employed and perform just like their male counterparts in, in, in the same field or in the same industries.
0: You were speaking a moment ago about experience, hypothetically, a, a man complaining that he's had X years of experience and a woman who may be equally qualified, but she's got fewer years of experience. It reminds me, I, I heard an expression which which said um, that someone has 20 years of one year experience. In other words, that <laughs> they have continued to repeat that same experience for 20 years. It doesn't give mm-hmm. them 20 years of experience. It's just one year on repeat. Absolutely. Absolutely correct. That's what I'm saying, that it shouldn't
1: matter. It shouldn't matter that someone says, I've got 20 years experience, and when you actually sit down and look at what they have been doing, it's the same thing. When you can get someone fresh, and they can do it better.
0: You're a mom. You work incredibly hard. How do you manage to cope with the juggle between such a demanding career that also has a, a an incredibly emotional component, as well as as motherhood.
1: Well, I, I must say, it is indeed a conservation issue for women, because you get, at times, women giving it an ex, as an excuse that I'm still a mother, I'm still raising my children, and I won't be able to take up such a demanding career. But the love of my work, the love of what I do, is, is what drives me to be able to to juggle the two, uh, I I I must just refer you to one article I read, Doctor Margaret. Before I I go on, it it was written by a scientist uh, from the University of Pretoria in 2050, and and it says that I quote from that article that how successful a mother or career scientist one can become is dependent on how one manages to divide available time between the two activities. Close quote. And that is exactly how I managed to do it. I've been able to manage the two juggles between motherhood and my work. Firstly, I have immense support from my husband, and I've always made sure that I spend time with my children. When it's time for homework, school activities, I am there with them. I make sure that I, I spend time with them. If it means having to work throughout the night, with my judgments, I will do that. That's the sacrifice that I'm willing to make. But I don't want to deny my children the time with their mother, the warmth that they should get from me. And now that they are grown up, they understand the work I do, the demands of my work. It's easy for me to explain to them that, you know, I need to work. They understand. It's her time. She's got about two hours of going through her work, they give me that space. But when it comes to me spending time with them, going on holiday, I make sure that I divide my time properly between my work and the time I spend with my family. I don't want any of them to suffer because if I have to only have my work alone, Dr. Malka, I don't think I can survive. I need that side to be able to be strong to do my work as a mother to seeing, seeing my children happy, seeing my children succeeding. It makes me happy. It motivates me. It makes me want to to work, to do more, because the joy that I get from seeing them makes me want to work, and I work happy. I enjoy what I'm doing as well. So I have been able to juggle it, and it has never posed a problem. I have not been able to stay away from work because I'm not able to to take care of my children. I've always managed to to balance the
0: two. So effective time management and also listening to you I'd imagine that it's not 50% of time in uh, towards family and 50% of time towards work it's about looking at the blend of what needs to happen on one day maybe it's a, a 70 30 um, yes. And the way that we utilize our, our time, I think they, they talk about Parkinson's law, where they say yes. your work will expand if you allow it to. So manage yes. manage That's your time.
1: True. It's so true. It's all about time and money. If it means for those two days or for the whole weekend, my son has got a uh, sport on Saturday and Sunday, I am there. I must spend the two days with him with his sport. And then I will see my work later. At night when he's sleepy, when there's no more activity, then that's when I will take care of my work.
0: Judge, Judge, you are are all about change and progression. I came across a quote attributed to Constance Baker Motley, which states, Mm -hmm. something which we think is impossible now is not impossible in another decade. In your opinion, what do you think needs to be done to ensure a better future for women?
1: Yes, uh, Dr. Malka, you remind me of our late president, Nelson Mandela, when he said it always seems impossible until it's done. And uh, as as I said earlier on, as women, we need to have that optimism, the hope and confidence that we can achieve and we can do it. It's, it's not easy to force one into doing something that they don't want to do because they will not perform. So it's, it's, it's crucial that we, we build that confidence in women, that hope in women, that optimism in women that you can achieve. And when someone says to you, it cannot be done, it will look impossible. But once you start doing it, you realize that, What was I complaining about? This is easy. I can do it. But it must start from within. You know, I once heard someone saying, you cannot expect a cat to go and fight a lion for its catch of the day. And it's true. We must start small. We start within ourselves. We start building that confidence as women. And then we move on. We build on one step at a time. As long as we have the confidence in us, as long as we are hopeful and optimistic that we can achieve and we can do it, that's the drive that will make us succeed. And I have no doubt that with that, we will be able to achieve as women.
0: I'm feeling very inspired by you. Thank you. One of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show who've made significant contributions both to their field as as well as excelling in their their own right and and getting to the the top of their game, is about mm-hmm. some of the factors that they feel have have contributed to their success. Some mm-hmm. people speak about hard work, uh, perseverance, uh, a particular person in their life. Can you tell us, in your opinion, what, what do you think have been some of the factors that have helped you in your career?
1: Well, I, I'm a driven person, Dr. Malka. I'm driven. I'm a very confident person. And when I focus myself on doing something, I do it 100%. I go all out. And uh, that, that really drives me. And once I have that hope, and the confidence, it it drives me to want to achieve. And I see positive in everything that I do. And ultimately that uh, results into the hard work because for me to carry out all that I feel, the hope, the confidence, the drive to achieve, I must work hard. And that's what I do. I drive myself to working hard. And that's what is, is driving me all these years in my career.
0: You you certainly practice what you preach. Definitely. Tell us, who have been some of the strong women in your life?
1: The the strong women in my life, Dr. Malka, it starts at home. It starts with my mother. Uh, she started work when she was very young. And the reason why she she did that is because she wanted to provide for her siblings. So she worked hard to make sure that she earns enough money to take her siblings to school. And she did the same with us. And that hard work and that drive is what I learned from her. And she's still sustaining it, even now that she's on pension, but she's still a hard worker. And I feel that seeing her and living with her and experiencing the hard work that she does to be able to achieve and succeed is what drives me and and sustains me as well. And again, in the different stages of my career, I've met different women. I've met women in practice who are advocates, who are attending successful practices. In the judiciary, I've seen women being appointed to head up divisions. For example, there are women who accepted the challenge to be appointed judge presidents of various divisions, like the judge president in the division that I am is a woman. She was the first woman to be appointed as a judge president. We have the president of the Supreme Court of Appeal, the first woman to be appointed as the president of the Supreme Court of Appeal. Other judge presidents as well, like um, Justice uh, Mahube Molimela, who is now in the Supreme Court of Appeal, she was also the first judge president woman to be appointed in the free state. Those are women that inspire me that it can be done. It is possible. There is a Justice Mukoro, who is now retired from the Constitutional Court. She was not in practice as uh, an attorney or an advocate, but she accepted the challenge to be appointed at the apex court of our country. And she did not shy away and say, but I have not practiced law. How can I go and preside in a court where I'll have people who have been in practice for years appear before me? She did not shy away from that. She went there. I get inspired by those kind of women. I'm also inspired by young women who, again, accept the challenge to be appointed on the bench, who are still mothers to young children, Justice Mbele in the free state. She's a young woman. She's still raising young children, but she accepted the challenge to say, I can serve on the bench. I can serve my people, and I can still raise my children. And those are the strong women that are affect me and inspire me in my life.
0: They are, are living proof that it can be done and they are living their, their full life. They've accomplished in, in every field and they're not, they're not afraid of, of moving on to the next level.
1: Definitely, definitely. It's, it's very inspiring to look at them and the challenges that they have faced but they are still going on.
0: And reflecting a moment on your life growing up, what, what would you say have been some of the pivotal experiences? Um, firstly I, I just want to say to you that
1: I, I spoke about my experience when I was talking to my teacher, but I remember as as I was growing up and I had a discussion with my father as well that I wanted to study law and he looked at me and said, But he's never seen a woman practicing law and uh why don't I just go and do teaching? Because uh, maybe I would be a better teacher than going into a field that might be very difficult. But I might say, as a driven person, that does not get me down, and it, it pushes me to achieve. And the day I graduated my first degree, he was the proudest person, and he was quite happy. And from then on, he became very, very supportive. And, you know, that, that's, that, that is what drives me it makes me want to achieve more and as as I was in the district court as a magistrate um i only spent 2 years as a magistrate in the district court and i realized that this this is not what i want to do i want to continue to do more and help people and i was criticized a lot i was criticized because my drive and to, you know the 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 That want to achieve uh, got people talking and saying, but you are young, you are inexperienced. Why do you want to move on to being a regional magistrate? And it, it came to a point where I had to wait. My appointment to the regional court was delayed because there were objections and challenges based on the fact that I'm young and inexperienced. But because I knew my abilities and what I'm able to achieve, I was not worried. I waited patiently, knowing that my time will come. And indeed, it did come that eventually I was appointed. And I realized that, that what the negative things that people say about you, when people try to pull you down, it should not affect you. The drive that you have in you should keep you going. And that's what kept me going. Throughout my life, when I registered for my law degree, I got to university. At that time, there were two degrees. It was a B-Uris degree and a B-Proc degree. The b Juris degree was for three years, and the B-Proc was four years. Everybody was going for B-Uris, and I asked, I said, why is no one interested in the B-Proc? And they said, no, B-Proc is longer. It takes more t- more years, and there are other courses that we don't want to do, like accounting and Latin and Afrikaans." And I said... That's where I'm going. And I registered for my bedrock because I realized that when you have the drive to do something, it should not matter what other people say. You just go ahead and you do it. And that's what are those moments in my life that have made me who I am today.
0: You know, there's a few things that that you've said in in terms of the motivation aspect. And last week we, we had a conversation with Judge Masipa and okay. similarly, she said that she was also discouraged by people about mm. pursuing her dreams. And mm. I often wonder how many girls have had their dreams squashed just by other people because they haven't they haven't been able to believe in themselves enough to go out and, and pursue their dreams.
1: You are absolutely right. You can, you can imagine if we have gone through it, it means it's still there. It's still happening because... Obviously, there are still men out there or individuals, even other women, who would discourage young girls from pursuing certain careers or from pursuing a legal career. And that's why you did mention in your introduction that I participated in a program called Take a Girl Child to Work. That was one of the reasons because there I was concentrating on these young girls from high school because that's where now the the, the, the decision of career starts. That's where they start deciding what they want to do. And when you sit down with them and you talk to them about these things, at times they will be shocked to hear that you're a judge. You're a woman, you're a judge. How is that possible? In this day and age, you will not believe that they, they would still not believe that there are women judges out there or there are women who are lawyers out there because to them they are still being told, they are still being taught that these careers are for men. As a woman, you cannot, you cannot succeed in them. And that is very important, that education must reach these young girls wherever they are. It, it, it's a program that I am passionate about. I want to see it proceeding because it helps. It really helps. I've had some of those girls who went through that Take a Girl Child program, and they went on to study law. And today they can still come back and say to me, I studied my law, I'm graduating, I'm going to practice as an attorney, and thank you for taking me through that program. Because with that program, we would take them through from high school, we take them through to the courts, we take them through to see attorneys, to discuss with advocates, to see the type of work that is being done. And they would realize that it's something that can be done.
0: It must be so rewarding to have ignited the spark, to have shown the way and that young women are, are living, living their dreams. I'm, yes, indeed. I'm going to read an adapted version of a George Bernard Shaw quote because I think mm-hmm. this really is, is relevant to our conversation. So, yes. the reasonable man, woman, adapts himself, herself, to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself or herself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man or woman. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Absolutely correct. I am absolutely agree.
0: So my my appeal is that we, we become unreasonable to drive progress.
1: <laughs> we should. We should. <laughs> to others to others it will look unreasonable. Fine, it's okay. But we know what we would be achieving with doing that. Uh,
0: and Fortunately, we are coming to the end of our time. So lastly, as we close out our conversation today, can you share a few words of inspiration for Women's Month, which you'd like to pass on to women in Africa that are listening to the show?
1: What I want to share with women out there, what is important, is that we should be the ones deciding if it's possible. It's up to each and every one of us to work hard so that we can achieve. It should not be dependent on anyone else telling us what is possible and what is not possible. Let's go out there as women, knowing that it's possible and we can work hard to achieve it. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for those words of of motivation. And thank you for joining us today to demonstrate what's possible. Your passion has been um, palpable, and we've had a wonderful time engaging with you on the show today.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Malta. Thank you for having me, and I wish you all the best.
0: Likewise, we we want to see that that progress of of moving on from high court judge to to whatever's next on your career Thank trajectory. Thank you
1: very much. Watch the space. Watch the space.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, and we have been talking to High Court Judge Toboko Jadje from the Northwest Division of the High Court.